0: Chapter 10, Part 1 of Anne of Geierstein by Sir Walter Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. We know not when we sleep nor when we wake. Visions distinct and perfect cross our eye, which to the slumberer seem realities, and while they wake. Some men have seen such sights, as set at naught the evidence of sense, and left them well persuaded they were dreaming. Anonymous. The apparition of Anne of Geierstein crossed her lover, her admirer, at least we must call him, within shorter time than we can tell the story, but it was distinct, perfect, and undoubted in the very instant when the young Englishman, shaking off his fond despondency, raised his head to look out upon the scene of his watch, she came from the nearer end of the bridge, crossing the path of the sentinel upon whom she did not even cast a look, and passed with a rapid yet steady pace towards the verge of the woodland. It would have been natural though Arthur had been directed not to challenge persons who left the castle, but only such as might approach it, that he should nevertheless, had it only been in mere civility, have held some communication, however slight, with the maiden as she crossed his post. But the suddenness of her appearance took from him, for the instant, both speech and motion. It seemed as if his own imagination had raised up a phantom, presenting to his outward senses the form and features which engrossed his mind, and he was silent, partly at least from the idea that what he gazed upon was immaterial and not of this world. It would have been no less natural that Anne of Geierstein should have in some manner acknowledged the person who had spent a considerable time under the same roof with her, had been often her partner in the dance and her companion in the field, but she did not evince the slightest token of recognition, nor even look towards him as she passed. Her eye was on the wood, to which she advanced swiftly and steadily, and she was hidden by its boughs ere Arthur had recollected himself sufficiently to determine what to do. His first feeling was anger at himself for suffering her to pass unquestioned when it might well chance that upon any errand which called her forth at so extraordinary a time and place he might have been enabled to afford her assistance, or at least advice. This sentiment was for a short time so predominant that he ran towards the place where he had seen the skirt of her dress disappear, and whispering her name as loud as the fear of alarming the castle permitted, conjured her to return and hear him but for a brief few moments. No answer, however, was returned, and when the branches of the trees began to darken over his head and to intercept the moonlight he recollected that he was leaving his post, and exposing his fellow travellers, who were trusting in his vigilance, the danger of surprise. He hastened, therefore, back to the castle gate with matter for deeper and more inextricable doubt and anxiety than had occupied him during the commencement of his watch. He asked himself in vain with what purpose that modest young maiden, whose manners were frank, but whose conduct had always seemed so delicate, and reserved, could sally forth at midnight like a damsel errant in romance when she was in a strange country and suspicious neighborhood. Yet he rejected, as he would have shrunk from blasphemy, any interpretation which could have thrown censure upon Anne of Geierstein. No, nothing was she capable of doing for which a friend could have to blush, but connecting her previous agitation with the extraordinary fact of her leaving the castle alone and defenseless at such an hour, Arthur necessarily concluded it must argue some cogent reason, and as was most likely of an unpleasant nature. "'I will watch her return,' he internally uttered, "'and if she will give me an opportunity, "'I will convey to her the assurance "'that there is one faithful bosom in her neighborhood, "'which is bound in honor and gratitude "'to pour out every drop of its blood, "'if by doing so it can protect her "'from the slightest inconvenience.' This is no silly flight of romance, for which common sense has a right to reproach me. It is only what I ought to do, what I must do, or forego every claim to be termed a man of honesty or honour. Yet scarce did the young man think himself anchored on a resolution which seemed unobjectionable, then his thoughts were again adrift. He reflected that Anne might have a desire to visit the neighbouring town of Bale, to which she had been invited the day before, and where her uncle had friends. It was indeed an uncommon hour, to select for such a purpose but arthur was aware that the swiss maidens feared neither solitary walks nor late hours and that anne would have walked among her own hills by moonlight much farther than the distance betwixt their place of encampment and bale to see a sick friend or for any similar purpose To press himself on her confidence then might be impertinence, not kindness, and as she had passed him without taking the slightest notice of his presence it was evident she did not mean voluntarily to make him her confidant, and probably she was involved in no difficulties where his aid could be useful. In that case the duty of a gentleman was to permit her to return as she had gone forth, unnoticed and unquestioned, leaving it with herself to hold communication with him or not, as she should choose. Another idea, belonging to the age, also passed through his mind, though it made no strong impression upon it. This form, so perfectly resembling Anne of Geierstein, might be a deception of the sight, or it might be one of those fantastic apparitions concerning which there were so many tales told in all countries, and of which Switzerland and Germany had, as Arthur well knew, their full share. The internal and undefinable feelings which restrained him from accosting the maiden, as might have been natural, For him to have done are easily explained on the supposition that his mortal frame shrank from an encounter with a being of a different nature. There had also been some expressions of the magistrate of Bale which might apply to the castles being liable to be haunted by beings from another world, but though the general belief in such ghostly apparitions prevented the Englishman from being positively incredulous on the subject, yet the instructions of his father, a man of great intrepidity and distinguished good sense, had taught him to be extremely unwilling to refer anything to supernatural interferences, which was capable of explanation by ordinary rules, and he therefore shook off without difficulty any feelings of superstitious fear which for an instant connected itself with his nocturnal adventure. He resolved finally to suppress all disquieting conjecture on the subject and to await firmly, if not patiently, the return of the fair vision which, if it should not fully explain the mystery, seemed at least to afford the only chance of throwing light upon it. Fixed, therefore, in purpose, he traversed the walk which his duty permitted, with his eyes fixed on the part of the forest where he had seen the beloved form disappear, and forgetful for the moment that his watch had any other purpose than to observe her return. But from this abstraction of mind he was roused by a distant sound in the forest which seemed the clash of armour. Recalled at once, to a sense of his duty and its importance to his father and his fellow travellers, Arthur planted himself on the temporary bridge, where a stand could best be made, and turned both eyes and ears to watch for approaching danger. The sound of arms and footsteps came nearer. Spears and helmets advanced from the Greenwood Glade and twinkled in the moonlight. But the stately form of Rudolf Donnerhugel marching in front was easily recognized and announced to our sentinel the return of the patrol. Upon their approach to the bridge, the challenge and interchange of sign and countersign, which is usual on such occasions, took place in due form, and as Rudolph's party filed off one after another into the castle, he commanded them to wake their companions, with whom he intended to renew the patrol, and at the same time to send a relief to Arthur Philipson whose watch on the bridge was now ended. This last fact was confirmed by the deep and distant toll of the minster clock from the town of Baal, which, prolonging its sullen sound over field and forest, announced that midnight was past. And now, comrade, continued Rudolph to the Englishman, have the cold air and long watch determined thee to retire, to food and rest, or dost thou still hold the intention of partaking our rounds? In very truth, it would have been Arthur's choice to have remained in the place where he was, for the purpose of watching Anne of Geierstein's return from her mysterious excursion. He could not easily have found an excuse for this, however, and he was unwilling to give the haughty Donnerhugel the least suspicion that he was inferior in hardihood or in the power of enduring fatigue to any of the tall mountaineers whose companion he chanced to be for the present. He did not, therefore, indulge even a moment's hesitation, but while he restored the borrowed partisan to the sluggish sigismund who came from the castle yawning and stretching himself like one whose slumbers have been broken by no welcome summons when they were deepest and sweetest he acquainted rudolph that he retained his purpose of partaking in his reconnoitring duty they were speedily joined by the rest of the patrolling party amongst whom was rudiger the eldest son of the landamman of Unterwalden, and when, led by the Bernese champion, they had reached the skirts of the forest, Rudolf commanded three of them to attend Rudiger Biedermann. "'Thou wilt make thy round to the left side,' said the Bernese. "'I will draw off to the right. See thou keepest a good lookout, and we will meet merrily at the place appointed.' take one of the hounds with you. I will keep Wolffinger, who will open on a Burgundian as readily as on a bear. Rudiger moved off with his party to the left, according to the directions received, and Rudolf, having sent forward one of his number in front and stationed another in the rear, commanded the third to follow himself and Arthur Philipson, who thus constituted the main body of the patrol. Having intimated to their immediate attendant to keep at such distance as to allow them freedom of conversation, Rudolph addressed the Englishman with the familiarity which their recent friendship had created. And now, King Arthur, what thinks the Majesty of England of our Helvetian youth? Could they win Gerdon? in tilt or tourney thinkest thou noble prince or would they rank but amongst the coward knights of Cornwall?s for tilt and tourney i cannot answer said arthur summoning up his spirits to reply because i never beheld one of you mounted on a steed or having spear in rest but if strong limbs and stout hearts are to be considered I would match you Swiss gallants with those of any country in the universe where manhood is to be looked for, whether it be in heart or hand. Thou speakest us fair, and young Englishman, said Rudolph. know that we think as highly of thee, of which I will presently afford thee a proof. Thou talkest but now of horses, I know but little of them. Yet, I judge, thou wouldst not buy a steed which thou hast only seen covered with trappings or encumbered with saddle and bridle, but wouldst desire to look at him when stripped and in his natural state of freedom. Ay, Mary, would I, said Arthur, thou hast spoken on that as if thou hadst been born in a district called Yorkshire." which men call the merriest part of merry England. Then I tell thee, said Rudolf Donnerhugel, that thou hast seen our Swiss youth but half, since thou hast observed them as yet only in their submissive attendance upon the elders of their cantons, or at most in their mountain sports, which, though they may show men's outward strength and activity, can throw no light on the spirit and disposition by which that strength and activity are to be guided and directed in matters of high enterprise. This was probably designed that these remarks should excite the curiosity of the stranger, but the Englishman had the image, look, and form of Anne of Geierstein as she had passed him in the silent hours of his watch too constantly before him, to enter willingly upon a subject of conversation totally foreign to what agitated his mind. He therefore only compelled himself to reply in civility that he had no doubt his esteem for the Swiss, both aged and young, would increase in proportion with his more intimate knowledge of the nation. He was then silent, and Donnerhugel, disappointed perhaps at having failed to excite his curiosity, walked also in silence by his side. Arthur, meanwhile, was considering with himself whether he should mention to his companion the circumstance which occupied his own mind, in the hope that the kinsman of Anne of Geierstein and ancient friend of her house might be able to throw some light on the subject, but he felt within his mind an insurmountable objection to converse with the Swiss on a subject in which Anne was concerned. That Rudolph made pretensions to her favor could hardly be doubted, and though Arthur, had the question been put to him, must in common consistency have resigned all competition on the subject, still he could not bear to think on the possibility of his rival's success, and would not willingly have endured to hear him pronounce her name. Perhaps it was owing to this secret irritability that Arthur, though he made every effort to conceal and to overcome the sensation, still felt a secret dislike to Rudolph Donnerhugel, whose frank but somewhat coarse familiarity was mingled with a certain air of protection and patronage which the Englishman thought was by no means called for. He met the openness of the Bernese indeed, with equal frankness, but he was ever and anon tempted to reject or repel the tone of superiority by which it was accompanied. The circumstances of their duel had given the Swiss no ground for such triumph, nor did Arthur feel himself included in that role of the Swiss youth over whom Rudolf exercised domination by general consent. So little did Philipson relish this affectation of superiority that the poor jest that termed him King Arthur, although quite indifferent to him when applied by any of the Biedermans, was rather offensive when Rudolph took the same liberty, so that he often found himself in the awkward condition of one who is internally irritated, without having any outward manner of testifying it with propriety. Undoubtedly, the root of all this tacit dislike to the young Bernese was a feeling of rivalry, but it was a feeling which Arthur dared not avow even to himself. It was sufficiently powerful, however, to suppress the slight inclination he had felt to speak with Rudolph on the passage of the night which had most interested him. And as the topic of conversation introduced by his companion had been suffered to drop, they walked on side by side in silence with the beard on the shoulder as the Spaniard says, looking round, that is, on all hands, and thus performing the duty of a vigilant watch. At length, after they had walked nearly a mile through forest and field, making a circuit around the ruins of Graf's Lust, of such an extent as to leave no room for an ambush betwixt them and the place, the old hound, led by the vedette who was foremost, stopped and uttered a low growl how now wolf said rudolph advancing what old fellow dost thou not know friends from foes come what sayest thou on better thoughts thou must not lose character in thy old age try it again the dog raised his head snuffed the air all around as if he understood what his master had said then shook his head and tail as if answering to his voice. Why, there it is now, said Donnerhugel, patting the animal's shaggy back. Second thoughts are worth gold. Thou seest it is a friend after all. The dog again shook his tail and moved forward with the same unconcern as before. Rudolph fell back into his place, and his companion said to him, we are about to meet rudiger and our companions i suppose and the dog hears their footsteps though we cannot it can scarcely yet be rudiger said the bernese his walk around the castle is of a wider circumference than ours someone approaches however for wolffinger is again dissatisfied look sharply out on all sides as rudolph gave his party the word to be on the alert, they reached an open glade, in which were scattered, at considerable distance from each other, some old pine-trees of gigantic size, which seemed yet huger and blacker than ordinary, from their broad sable-tops and shattered branches being displayed against the clear and white moonlight. We shall hear, at least, said the swiss have the advantage of seeing clearly whatever approaches but i judge said he after looking around for a minute it is but some wolf or deer that has crossed our path and the scent disturbs the hound hold stop yes it must be so he goes on the dog accordingly proceeded after having given some signs of doubt, uncertainty, and even anxiety. Apparently, however, he became reconciled to what had disturbed him, and proceeded once more in the ordinary manner. This is singular, said Arthur Philipson, and to my thinking I saw an object close by yonder patch of thicket, where, as well as I can guess, a few thorn and hazel bushes around the stems of four or five large trees. My eye has been on that very thicket for these five minutes past, and I saw nothing,' said Rudolph. "'Nay, but,' answered the young Englishman, "'I saw the object, whatever it was, while you were engaged in attending to the dog.' And by your permission, I will forward and examine the spot. Were you, strictly speaking, under my command, said Donner Hugel, I would command you to keep your place. If they be foes, it is essential that we should remain together. But you are a volunteer in our watch, and therefore may use your freedom. I thank you, answered Arthur, and sprang quickly forward. He felt indeed at the moment that he was not acting courteously as an individual, nor perhaps correctly as a soldier, and that he ought to have rendered obedience, for the time, to the captain of the party in which he had enlisted himself, but on the other hand the object which he had seen, though at a distance and imperfectly, seemed to bear a resemblance to the retiring form of Anne of Geierstein as she had vanished from his eyes an hour or two before, under the cover of the forest, and his ungovernable curiosity to ascertain whether it might not be the maiden in person, allowed him to listen to no other consideration. Ere Rudolph had spoken out his few words of reply, Arthur was half-way to the thicket, It was, as it had seemed at a distance, of small extent, and not fitted to hide any person who did not actually couch down amongst the dwarf bushes and underwood. Anything white, also, which bore the human size and form, must, he thought, have been discovered among the dark red stems and swarthy-colored bushes which were before him. These observations were mingled with other thoughts. If it was Anne of Geierstein whom he had a second time seen, she must have left the more open path, desirous probably of avoiding notice. And what right or title had he to direct upon her the observation of the patrol? He had, he thought, observed that, in general, the maiden rather repelled than encouraged the attentions of Rudolf Donnerhugel, or where it would have been discourteous to have rejected them entirely that she endured without encouraging them. What then could be the propriety of his intruding upon her private walk, singular indeed, from time and place, but which on that account she might be more desirous to keep secret from the observation of one who was disagreeable to her. Nay, was it not possible that Rudolph might derive advantage to his otherwise unacceptable suit by possessing the knowledge of something which the maiden desired to be concealed? As these thoughts pressed upon him, Arthur made a pause, with his eyes fixed on the thicket, from which he was now scarce thirty yards distant, and although scrutinizing it with all the keen accuracy which his uncertainty and anxiety dictated, he was actuated by a strong feeling that it would be wisest to turn back to his companions and report to Rudolph that his eyes had deceived him. But while he was yet undecided whether to advance or return, The object which he had seen became again visible, on the verge of the thicket, and advanced straight towards him, bearing, as on the former occasion, the exact dress and figure of Anne of Geierstein. This vision, for the time, place, and suddenness of the appearance, made it seem rather an illusion than a reality, struck Arthur with surprise, which amounted to terror, the figure passed within a spear's length, unchallenged by him, and giving not the slightest sign of recognition, and directing its course to the right hand of Rudolph, and the two or three who were with him, was again lost among the broken ground and bushes. Once more the young man was reduced to a state of the most inextricable doubt "'nor was he roused from the stupor into which he was thrown "'till the voice of the Bernese sounded in his ear. "'Why, how now, King Arthur, art thou asleep, or art thou wounded?' "'Neither,' said Philipson, collecting himself, "'only much surprised. "'Surprised? And at what, most royal? "'Forbear foolery,' said Arthur, somewhat sternly, "'and answer as thou art a man.' Did she not meet thee? Didst thou not see her? See her? See whom? said Donnerhugel. I saw no one, and I could have sworn you had seen no one either, for I had you in my eye the whole time of your absence, excepting two or three moments. If you saw aught, why gave you not the alarm? Because it was only a woman, answered Arthur faintly. Only a woman, repeated Rudolph, in a tone of contempt. By my honest word, King Arthur, if I had not seen pretty flashes of valour fly from thee at times, I should be apt to think that thou hast only a woman's courage thyself. Strange that a shadow by night or a precipice in the day Should quell so bold a spirit as thou hast often shown." "'And as I will ever show when occasion demands it,' "'interrupted the Englishman with recovered spirit. "'But I swear to you that if I be now daunted, "'it is by no mere earthly fears "'that my mind hath been for a moment subdued. "'Let us proceed on our walk,' said Rudolph. We must not neglect the safety of our friends. This appearance of which thou speakest may be but a trick to interrupt our duty. They moved on through the moonlight glades. A minute's reflection restored young Philipson to his full recollection, and with that to the painful consciousness that he had played a ridiculous and unworthy part in the presence of the person whom, of the male sex at least, he would the very last have chosen as a witness of his weakness. He ran hastily over the relations which stood betwixt himself, Donnerhugel, the landamman, his niece, and the rest of that family, and contrary to the opinion which he had entertained but a short while before, settled in his own mind that it was his duty, to mention to the immediate leader under whom he had placed himself the appearance which he had twice observed in the course of that night's duty. There might be family circumstances, the payment of a vow, perhaps, or some such reason which might render intelligible to her connections the behavior of this young lady. Besides, he was for the present a soldier on duty, and these mysteries might be fraught with evils to be anticipated or guarded against. In either case, his companions were entitled to be made aware of what he had seen. It must be supposed that this resolution was adopted when the sense of duty and of shame for the weakness which he had exhibited had for the moment subdued Arthur's personal feelings towards Anne of Geierstein, feelings also liable to be chilled by the mysterious uncertainty which the events of that evening had cast like a thick mist around the object of them. While the Englishman's reflections were taking this turn, his captain or companion, after a silence of several minutes, at length addressed him, I believe, he said, my dear comrade, that as being at present your officer, I have some title to hear from you the report of what you have just now seen, since it must be something of importance which could so strongly agitate a mind so firm as yours. But if, in your own opinion, it consists with the general safety to delay your report of what you have seen, until we return to the castle, and then deliver it to the private ear of the landamman, you have only to intimate your purpose, and far from urging you to place confidence in me personally, though I hope I am not undeserving of it, I will authorize your leaving us and returning instantly to the castle. This proposal touched him, to whom it was made exactly in the right place, an absolute demand of his confidence might perhaps have been declined. The tone of moderate request and conciliation fell presently in with the Englishman's own reflections. I am sensible, he said, Hauptmann, that I ought to mention to you that which I have seen to-night, but on the first occasion it did not fall within my duty to do so. And now that I have a second time witnessed the same appearance, I have felt for these few seconds so much surprised at what I have seen that even yet I can scarce find words to express it. As I cannot guess what you may have to say, replied the Bernese, I must beseech you to be explicit. We are but poor readers of riddles, we thick-headed Switzers yet it is but a riddle which I have to place before you, Rudolf Donnerhugel, answered the Englishman, and a riddle which is far beyond my own guessing at. He then proceeded, though not without hesitation. While you were performing your first patrol amongst the ruins, a female crossed the bridge from within the castle, walked by my post without saying a single word, and vanished under the shadows of the forest. Ha! exclaimed Donnerhugel, and made no further answer. Arthur proceeded. Within these five minutes the same female form passed me a second time, issuing from the little thicket and clump of firs and disappeared without exchanging a word. No further this apparition bore the form, face, gait, and dress of your kinswoman Anne of Geierstein. Singular enough, said Rudolph, in a tone of incredulity. I must not, I suppose, dispute your word, for you would receive doubt, on my part, as a mortal injury. Such is your northern chivalry. Yet let me say, I have eyes, as well as you, and I scarce think they quitted you for a minute. We were not fifty yards from the place where I found you standing in amazement, how, therefore, should not we also have seen that which you say and think you saw? To that I can give no answer," said Arthur. Perhaps your eyes were not exactly turned upon me during the short space in which I saw this form. Perhaps it might be visible, as they say fantastic appearances sometimes are, To only one person at a time. You suppose then that the appearance was imaginary or fantastic? said the Bernese. Can I tell you? replied the Englishman. The Church gives its warrant that there are such things, and surely it is more natural to believe this apparition to be an illusion than to suppose that Anne of Geierstein, a gentle and well-nurtured maiden, should be traversing the woods at this wild hour, when safety and propriety so strongly recommend her being within doors. "'There is much in what you say,' said Rudolph, and yet there are stories afloat, though few care to mention them, which seem to allege that Anne of Geierstein is not altogether such as other maidens, and that she has been met with, in body and spirit, where she could hardly have come by her own unassisted efforts. Ha! said Arthur, so young, so beautiful, and already in league with the destroyer of mankind. It is impossible." "'I said not so,' replied the Bernese, "'nor have I leisure at present to explain my meaning more fully. As we return to the castle of Graf's Lust, I may have an opportunity to tell you more, but I chiefly brought you on this patrol to introduce you to some friends whom you will be pleased to know and who desire your acquaintance, and it is here I expect to meet them. End of chapter 10, part 1.